0: You know that when children dream about the days ahead, they don't have any concept that it's going to be a bummer. They, they, they want to do great things. It's going to be great. I'm going to grow up and do this. It's going to be wonderful. But now you've all grown up and did it work out that way. Most of the time, we'll, we'll say stuff like, uh, I had this ambition, but somewhere along the way, I took a wrong path. True or False. And then you're ended up over here, and then you need the Lord even more, and He delivers you, and you get going again. We're going to talk about not missing God's direction these next few weeks, specifically following a road map. I call it the fast track to this place of divine favor. The pla- Everybody say divine favor. When God rains down on your life good things and blessings, and you become what you're destined to be instead of missing it, and ended up marrying the wrong person and and whatever else, having a corporate scandal. Uh, These things happen to Christians too because they don't follow the path. Um, I'm I'm starting a series, Matthew 5, please turn there, that has been asked for. Uh, This summer we studied a course on the end times, how do we live in the end times. And every week we talked about how to live a Sermon on the Mount lifestyle. And so... Uh, my plan this fall was to teach into this subject the Sermon on the Mount on a Tuesday night up at our north campus but it just didn't work out we're still remodeling that place up there and more the reason is I don't have a free night to teach it we're very active with vote yes for life and and getting the churches in the state the pastors in the state uh, to use the platform that they have on moral issue and stand up We have four to five hundred friendly congregations in the state uh, we need courage in our pastoral ranks. True or false? True. It takes courage on this issue. And so I'm involved with that. We have meetings all over the state these next few weeks uh, rallying pastors. Pray particular on Tuesday because I'm hosting a conference call with state pastors. And last two weeks ago there were 200 some, 300 some pastors or leaders in the state on a conference call on this issue. And so every week between now and November 7th we're we're talking with the pastors of the state, We're trying to rally them, and a number of groups are going to be joining us on that call, and key leaders, even around America, are on that call. Um, and so I'm excited about that, but uh, what, what that means for us is I can't teach this on Tuesday night, and I'm going to have to do it on the weekend, which is probably fine, because everybody uh, needs to be in this right now, Matthew 5. You have your Bible open? Okay. Okay. Now, it's right at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. Just take note of some of that. When you open your Bible, you ought to sort of figure out where you're at and what's going on. Jesus has just called his disciple, Matthew, his disciples together, Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. He's, he's bringing the team together, the people who will follow him, represent him, even after he goes and be's with the Lord in heaven. Uh, and, and so then in, in chapter 5, he teaches them something very, very important, how to live in such a way to get the blessing of the Lord. And so let's begin there, chapter 5, verse 1. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled who were before you, and it goes on, and it gets greater, and we're just going to stop for now. Put your hand on there. Let's pray. I ask, Father, that there would be an impartation of truth today uh, in the ministry of the Word, that you'd give me a grace to communicate in such a way that our lives are changed. I pray that each person here is open to uh, challenge, conviction, reorientation, more direction. I pray for that uh, this morning. I pray that our hearts would be as good soil to receive the Word. And I know, Father, that you have a message for today and I, I have some fear and trembling and I've never lost that before, as I stand before people every week uh, that I indeed could be used of you to speak the word of the Lord but if I say something that would lead someone in a, in a, in a different path, that's why teachers are held to higher judgment. And so if I were to say something this morning, Father, it's not on your heart, I pray that you'd stop that and if it gets out, that it would fall to the ground and never be remembered. But, but Father, If, and I believe this is the case, you'll speak today. I pray that it would would penetrate our hearts deeply and it would burn in our bones. The word of the Lord would burn in our bones like in Jeremiah. And we would be people who live fervent lives, fasted lifestyles, modeled after the Sermon on the Mount. And I thank you for this and I pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, I I have a confession to make to you today, nothing big, Um, but on occasion uh, I look through a Bible or two that gets left behind in the church. Now, I'm not looking for your name so I can return it. I'm not looking for anything personal so I can get the inside scoop on on who you are. Um, I notice the well-worn areas. They're interesting to me. Most people uh, if you were to look at their Bible, uh, if they've had it for a little while, you can kind of tell where they frequent. Most, uh, I think, Psalms and Proverbs, you can just kind of tell by the oil and soil on the sides of the pages. And a lot of people are in Romans or Revelation, that kind of thing. If you were to take a look at this Bible, it flips open very quickly, uh, it's 10 years old, you would immediately notice that I frequent Matthew 5 through 7 probably more than any other part in the Bible. It's a part that's very dear to my heart. And if you were to go in my office and pull off the shelf the Bible that I used the decade before or however long I had it, and you were to open it up and just sort of study it and try to figure out you know, what, where, where is this guy sort of centered uh, in terms of his, his uh, desire and fascination with the Word of God, you would find that that Bible as well is very uh, worn out in the area of Matthew 5-7, through the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, if you were to go in there in my office and I were to show you the Bible I had as a youngster, um, you, you'd open it up and you'd see. I'd have my scribbles all throughout as a little kid, and this verse was cool, and I'd write something today that's even funny. But, but you would notice its concentration of highlight and markers on Matthew five through seven. I have been a, a Christian for thirty years. I did a little prodigal season in my life, but about thirty years I've been going and following the Lord. And I want to tell you that for thirty years I have been stuck in this thing we call the sermon on the Mount. And I, I have to be honest with you, I thought that I'd outgrow it someday, this interest in it. Um, you know, like gr- graduate the school of Jesus and then progress into the school of Paul, you know, Romans and all the theology and all of that. But I, I haven't. And uh, I don't know of anyone who's mastered this enough to move on. I, I wrote a workbook for teenagers in 1990 on the Sermon on the Mount called A Flashlight on the Sun, S-U-N. And uh, in the preface of that, I made a comment how my efforts to expound on what's in the Sermon on the Mount amounts to like a flashlight on the sun. You know, the, sun, the revelation of the sun that would pour forth is so overwhelming. This little flashlight is really nothing there. And so great is it. I, I really don't know anybody who's like said, I, yeah, I've been there, done that, and I got all that down. We need to continually revisit this, and I have. In fact, I have 130 books that I've read on the Sermon on the Mount over the years. And I don't tell you that to impress you. I tell you that to just kind of show you I've come under its spell and I hope that that's contagious because this is a critical part of scripture and I don't want you to be impressed in fact unless you actually see me living it because I believe the Sermon on the Mount is not meant to be admired, it's meant to be obeyed and I stole that line from a guy named R.T. France it's up there the Sermon on the Mount is not meant to be admired but what? so that's point number one of five today I just stole the verbiage from him. The Sermon on the Mount is not meant to be admired. It's meant to be obeyed. Most people admire the Sermon on the Mount. Even people who have no interest in Christianity but are fascinated with Jesus as a teacher, the, you know, they're not Christians. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount is something they admire. All the famous passages of Jesus are there. Turn the other cheek, the golden rule, the Lord's Prayer. Ask, seek, and knock. Seek ye for treasures in heaven. Don't judge people. You know, love your enemies. They're all in here, wise and foolish builders. They're they're in here, and and in fact, the beatitudes have stirred movements. You know, blessed are uh, the peacemakers. Blessed are the, the the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. All these these are famous passages of scripture. The beatitudes. You look at them; they're beautiful. They're poetic. I mean, these things, people cross-stitch the words of this and put it on their walls. You go to the Christian bookstore, you can get a beautiful frame, pay several hundred dollars for it. Somebody with a gift of calligraphy, you know, writing, Blessed you know, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so this is, this is impressive stuff. But I, but I have the sense as I read it and reread it that God isn't wanting to wow us with what's there. He's wanting us to walk it out. That's an amen spot. Do you need coaching today? Are you awake? Let me say that again. He's not wanting to wow us with this. He's wanting us to walk it out. Amen. Amen. I believe that the key verse, and I'll just skip ahead just so you can get oriented to the text, of the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 6, verse 8. Some of you like to write in your Bibles. I would underline the first five words and write. This is the key to the entire Sermon on the Mount right here. Matthew 6, 8. Do not be like them. The religious leaders, the other track, every, whatever every other church is doing, just don't go down that road. Do not be like them. In the Sermon on the Mount, on both sides of that key, are, are, m- there's much great stuff about we ought to be radically different than all the other religious around. We ought to be radically different than the world. And this is critical. And you know why? Because six days a week, most of the American church is indistinguishable from anyone else in the world in terms of devotion and lifestyle. And that's frightening. Particularly haunting to me are the words of Mahatma Gandhi. I don't know when he died, uh, I guess, and said 30 years, and I was told I was wrong, but somebody might know, and I I don't... uh, uh, How many? 1948, so it's been a while. Uh, But Gandhi based his entire life on the Sermon on the Mount and the teachings of Jesus. He based his entire government on the Sermon on the Mount. Somebody came up to him one day and said, Gandhi, or I don't know how you go up to Gandhi. Maybe they said Mr. Gandhi, or maybe they said Mahatma. Mahatma, um, your whole life is based on the Sermon on the Mount and the teachings of Jesus. How come you're not a Christian? And he said, well, I've seen the Sermon on the Mount, and I've seen Christians, and they're not the same. There's a great disconnect. Let me give you the exact quote. The message of Jesus, as I understand it, is contained in the Sermon on the Mount, and it is that sermon which has endeared Jesus to me. That message to my mind has suffered distortion in the West. Much of what passes as Christianity is a negation of the Sermon on the Mount. And I believe that this is an embarrassment to Christ. Do you believe that the American church is an embarrassment to Christ at times? Sometimes the cringe factor in me comes up when I see some of what we do and how the world views it. And I think it would bring shame on us as a church. I just say to myself, how, lo- how far, Lord, have we fallen from the summit of the Sermon on the Mount? And maybe our church, we can come back up into that place this fall. Are you interested in doing that? Just getting back into the heart of God Rick Warren was here last weekend. He's always got something good to say. He had a great word. Listen to what he says, though. I'll give you the quote. He said there's two basic reasons that people don't have Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The first is because they've never met a Christian. The second is because they have met a Christian. And there's always a great disconnect between what we say and the facade that we have on. And how we live out our lives. And people can sniff it out a mile away. And so I'm saying, my friends, it's time we ascend the mountainside with Jesus and sit Sit in submission again to what uh, he said. Sit at his feet. And I want to tell you that it's in that place divine favor will fall upon your life. There are two basic passages of Scripture that have been central to our church. In terms of passages, we keep going back to. There's like core verses that are all over the place. But um, when we started the church, it's 12 years ago, uh, first five, seven years, I, I said, we're in Acts every single year. At least go back to the book of Acts. So either I preached in Acts or, or uh, uh, you know, so we had Bible studies in Acts. We're always in Acts, coming back to Acts. And the other passage is the Sermon on the Mount. Three or four times we've revisited this. And I didn't do this at my own choosing this time. We taught the Omega course this summer, and uh, people um, are talking, and this is what we ought to be talking about. This flows right out of that, and I'll tell you why uh, in in just a second. But I I just want you to know that in the weeks ahead, you are going to be confronted with stuff that runs directly counter to the cultural tidal wave that's out there. And I, I just wonder if you're ready for it. Are you ready for it? Are you interested in it? I mean he says poor in spirit. We're getting into that next week. That runs in the face of pride, gentlemen. I mean that's what's in us. We all, I'm always going back to that one, the issue of pride. And God says he opposes the proud. At every passage he's he's given us a whole different view, but it's very important I believe for the end time church which we are. For us to be in the Sermon on the Mount, we we studied this Omega course this summer. We're looking at the end times, and we say, "How do we live? How do we live such that you know we don't don't fall away?" And the answer is, live the fasted lifestyle of of the Sermon on the Mount. That the Sermon on the Mount holds the key. Listen now to raising your threshold for endurance and suffering in the end times. You, You live this lifestyle, I think you'll be just fine. It's vitally important that when Christ comes back, He finds a. A wholehearted church. Say that. Wholehearted church. You say, what's a wholehearted church? It's a church that's based on Matthew chapter 5 and and, and through chapter 7. Now, let's get into this, 5 through 7. This is the very first teaching session of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. There are five blocks of teaching in the Gospel of Matthew from Jesus. If you have a red-letter edition Bible, you can find those very easily. You just sort of every few pages, you go to where there's a big chunk of red letters, and that's probably the next... I'm sure it is. There's five big blocks of those, and some of you are going to go figure that out right now. You're going to go find them all. Um, But I just want to say this is the first block of teaching. Now think about that. He's just called his disciples together, and this is the first thing he says. If order says anything about importance, then this being the first teaching, Matthew 5 through 7, must then take a special place of significance In terms of what it is to be kingdom people. Let me show you the importance of this just within the Sermon on the Mount itself. Turn to Matthew chapter 7, the very end of it, verse 24. Okay, so we got the wise and foolish builders. You see that, yes or no? Most people, believers, unbelievers alike, they know about the wise and foolish builders. They know that parable. They know at least this much that the wise man was the one who built his house on the rock. And, uh, and when the storm came he was fine and they know that the foolish man was the one who built his house in the sand. When the storm came his house crashed. It's a story that's way out there already in pop- and, and has been for years in popular culture, Christian and non-Christian. But that's where the knowledge of the novice tends to stop. The more initiated, which all of you I would suggest are, and some of you very initiated into the things of the Sermon on the Mount, will be able to point out, well, the rock is in fact what it says in verse 24 and verse 26. The rock is these words of mine. Anyone who bases their lives on these words of mine um, will endure this, the storm. But it never fails, as I teach and preach on the Sermon on the Mount, that most Christians do not know the primary meaning of the words, these words of mine. From the time, I think, when we're in Sunday school, we're taught that the Bible is the foundation for life, right? And that's true. We want to build our lives on the Bible. But I want to tell you that that's not the primary meaning of those words, these words of mine in verse 24 and 26. When Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine, he's not referring to the Bible in, in, in general, though that's true, He's referring in specific to the very words that just came forth from his mouth. He was explicitly placing the Sermon on the Mount in a very foundational place in the life of every single believer. He's laying out, in my terminology, the fast track toward divine favor right out of the chute. He doesn't want us to go off on this way. This is what, where you go. This is your pathway. And I use the word fast track not because it's quick. Or not because it's easy, because it's neither. It's just the most direct route. And it's not over here and over here and over here. It's a hard road, but it's the one that will get you into the place of divine delusion. Those are the terms that I like to, to, to use. And so that's just one of the clues within the Sermon on the Mount itself of its importance in our life. And I hope that you'll go into the Sermon on the Mount this week. You'll read Matthew 5-7 through 7 every single day. Just get into it. It will come alive layer after layer. But there's more clues in here, and I just want to orient you to them and kind of give an introduction today. Look at chapter one, or excuse me, chapter five, verse one, the first verse of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus uh, has the crowds, it says he goes up the mountain, up the mountainside. Now this is lost to us because we're uh, predominantly not a Jewish group of People uh matthew written to hebrew christians hebrew followers of christ and when they saw the word up the mountain immediately they know what up the mountain means they're they're thinking back to moses up the mountain it's it's a cultural and um theological it's a traditional phrase up the mountain and so jesus is indeed uh, being introduced here in the gospel of matthew as the new moses and he's bringing a law, a law of love. It's a, it's a, it's a fulfillment of the, the law of Moses. But up the mountain, and, and the verse is this Exodus nineteen three. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain and said, And then we got the Ten Commandments. And so when he says up the mountain, it ought to make a Hebrew Christian go, Whoa, what's going to come out now is very important. It's coming from the mountain of the Lord. And so within the sermon itself, front end, the back end. It's highly significant. So everybody say, up the mountain. Now, up the mountain, going up the mountain has become Christianese in our culture for going away, getting out with God to get a word from God. And that's okay. So this is point number two. Going up the mountain with God is something every believer ought to be doing on a regular basis. Amen? Amen? Going up the mountain, getting with God, sitting at the feet of Jesus, fasting and praying, being there open only to him to impart into your life is something we ought to be doing all the time. And Jesus, I believe, is still wooing his followers away from the crowd, away from the hassle and the hustle of the world, calling them to a place with himself where he will release the, the revelation that will result in favor in your life, an open heaven prayers answered the powers and the mysteries and the signs and wonders of the of the kingdom of god are received through this experience of being with him up on the mountain now we think uh, you know i'm not very far along in my christian life as a matter of fact i'm not any further along than i was last year at this time i would say it's because you haven't taken seriously going up on the mountain you can't go up on the mountain with him on a regular basis and still be in the same place this time next year he will change you in a profound way. And I know that mentoring is important, you know, to be discipled and grow in your Christian life. And we recommend that. We say, get with an older brother in the Lord. I'm committed to the Paul Timothy relationship where you are discipled and all of that. Mentoring's critically important. But I just want to tell you if you have a choice between being mentored and being on the mountain, if it comes to a choice between those two, and I don't think it rarely does, but if it does, pick the mountain every single time because that is critically important. You can hang out with your buddies and you go, I got a buddy who holds me accountable. We meet for coffee every other week. Great. Don't neglect the mountain of the Lord. Don't neglect the mountain of the Lord. And we we our staff is growing and we we as through the years as we've added staff and I've figured out who do who do I want around me? I want to tell you that you now I have teenagers. I'd rather have a youth pastor around and we have one who's been to the mountain with the lord than somebody who has a piece of paper that hangs on the wall says he's got a degree in youth ministry. Why? Why would I say that as a parent? Because I want the impartation that comes from the mountain in my kid. It's not about information. We've been cranking that out in Sunday school. And I'm not saying Sunday school is bad. I'm just saying that the Lord Jesus is the one who wants to meet with his people and empower his people. Don't settle for anything less. Don't be content in your relationship with the Lord unless you're with him on a mountain. You say, how often? Well, i got a friend, and I've told you about him before. He takes one week a month. Now, I don't know that you can do that. I can't do that. But three days, every day. Set aside a place and a time where you're on the mountain with the Lord and get away from the crowd and, and don't be content unless you have an encounter with Him and you're intimate with Him. Press into His heart. Dive into it. You say, how does the Lord speak to me? Well, at least go to this. He'll speak to you through that for sure. And then He'll speak to you as His Spirit pours out on you. And go into the layers of meaning that are in the Word of God. It will start to unfold before you as you go off the mountain. And you'll come off the mountaintop and you'll say, my life has changed. I've been reading this for a lot of a lot of years. I've told you that, but I want to tell you I got into it again this week, and another little piece flew out at me, smacked me around. Do you want to see what it was? Matthew five twenty one. You've heard it said to the people long ago, "Don't murder," and I'm thinking, "Yeah, man, we're in this. We're, we don't want to kill babies. We don't want to. We don't want to murder babies. We want to stop. That's our issue." You've heard it said. That's the religious spirit, the Pharisees, all that. You, you know that, that that would say, you know. Uh, that would speak into the church. It, but, but then we have this, this, this spirit that would kill. And I'm like, yes, Lord, teach us about that. Well, the next verse, I got like, thrown back in my chair. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother, subject, n- in other words, that same spirit that Steve's so uh, fierce about that would kill a kid is operative in his own heart, and maybe yours as well, as we assassinate one, to, one another's character. And as we speak ill against one another, it brings a subject to judgment. The next little piece is like messing with me even more. Again, anyone who says to his brother, rakah, which is an Aramaic word that's an insult to someone's intelligence or their way of thinking or their way of doing something. You know, oh, those people over there, they're all goofy, you know. Rakah. It's in us, the same spirit. It says you're answerable to the Sanhedrin, which was the seventy. Some of your Bibles say the Supreme Court, which is funny to me. to be. That, that's interesting. Uh, but anyway, I'm, all, I'm, off, I'm off track on that. But I just, I just wanted to show you how important it is for these layers of meaning to be coming out as we get with the Lord. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. We'll get back in the zone here. Verse 1 says that he sat down. That's interesting detail. We kind of fly over that kind of thing. But I want to tell you that in the Hebrew mindset, which Matthew's written uh, with, with the Hebrew mindset in mind, this would jump out. Now, when we have something important to say, we stand up, don't we? But in this culture, when a rabbi had something of critical importance that he wanted to say, he sat down. And so when they see this, up the mountain, sat down, they're all ears. Because they know that what's about to flow out is of incredible kingdom significance that we would not want to ignore. We still keep this sit-down tradition of importance going a little bit on the university campus. We talk about the professor's chair. Um, and, and uh, you know, our Catholic brothers and sisters, you know, the most important thing that the Pope could say is what he says, ex cathedra, which means seated on his papal throne. And that tradition of being seated when something incredibly weighty comes out has come from this this uh, this tradition but even the phrase now you lose it in the niv um in verse two um he began to teach them saying the phrase is literally he opened his mouth now that's kind of funny he sat down and he opened his mouth why doesn't it say he sat down and said because the phrase opened his mouth is once again a phrase i'll give you right out of a word book it means opening a heart to share weighty matters of grave importance the phrases here we we're lo- they're lost on us we're like this is not any different than any other part of the bible and i don't mean to say that one part's more inspired than the other but i'm ter- i'm telling you in terms of kingdom living this is like 101 we got to get in it and most students of the bible agree most most books most uh, professors they will tell you that what's in matthew chapter 5 through 7 is the essence of jesus life and his teaching and we need to be familiar with it and uh, I don't believe this was lost on any of the followers of Christ in the first centuries. And I will tell you this, I don't have time to get into the details, I have this in other places, but there's no other more quoted part of the Bible in the first 400 years of the Christian church than this part. And it's important. Now let's get into it. Verse verse 3, it begins. Any introductory course on public speaking will say something about the introduction and its importance, right? Have you taken public speaking? They will talk to you about the importance of the introduction. I remember taking classes on public speaking and preaching, and I remember one professor, he said, you know, in terms of the pulpit, you got two minutes, basically, to hook them in. Um, Otherwise, their window of attention shuts on you for the rest of the time. And I know what that's like. I look at some of you, and you're like, you know, it's just you're gone. And I try to, that first two minutes. Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, I believe that Jesus set the hook with the very first word, blessed. Blessed. You say, how do you set the hook? And I want to tell you why. Because everyone on the mountainside that day, indeed everyone in here, is hungry for God's blessing and God's favor. And and so they're, they're there and they're on the mountainside. You, go, you show up in church, hope there's a word. You, there's the man of God and, and you're, you're, you're hoping a truth falls out that will result in us being in better favor with God. I know people come to church for a lot of reasons, but I believe one of the main reasons they come to church... At the core of why they're here is they seek God's favor. They might not deserve it, but they want it. And maybe that's why you came. My read on people, I talk to a lot of people, you talk to people, is that people are anxious to have God smile on them. They, they don't want God mad at them. I mean, I suppose there's some rebellious or obstinate people that would, you know, like not care or try to fight God because they're stubborn or whatever. But for the most part, in our heart of hearts, Every one of us wants to be in, a good, in good favor with God. We don't know exactly how to do that, and we know we certainly don't deserve it, but, but we want it. And I think that Jesus, when he said blessed, he hooked down into that creational need in every one of us to have favor. Now the word blessed, if you look at it in the first nine verses from verse 3 to verse 11, it comes out nine times. It's like blessed, 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 blessed. And, and I, 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 we're going to close in just a minute with a, with a song on Send Rain, Lord. I, I know that nine is the number of the Holy Spirit. So in nine times we hear blessed, 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 blessed. And what I believe that the Lord Jesus is doing right out of the bat here, he's starting his sermon out showing us the road map to the place where the, the Spirit rains down blessing on people. If we could get into this place there will be the the spirit, the the open heaven over us will be great and it will be the divine favor. And if we live any other way than it's described here, it'll be like the heavens are shut up to us, but blessing flows for those who live like this. And I used to think, and I'm going to get into this more next week, but that there was eight different kinds of people mentioned here. You know, blessed are the meek. Well, that's the that's the Amish, you know. And, and blessed are the persecuted. Well, that's the Chinese that are underground. And uh, you know, blessed are the, you know, the, the peacemakers. And, and those are that, that that's the, that's the Mennonites. And and I used to have all these, you know, like there's ten different categories of people. I don't believe that anymore. I believe that we have eight different qualities of what it means to be a follower of Christ that will release blessing from God. All eight of these ought to be in every single one of us. Every every single one of us ought to have all eight of these. And so I want to say that if, if it's true that the Sermon on the Mount is the essence of the teaching of Jesus, the Beatitudes are the essence of the essence. Here's my question. If this passage is so doggone important, why don't more people live it? And the answer is because, I believe, it teaches the exact opposite of what the world is teaching. Now, this is number three. What Jesus teaches runs counter to the cultural tidal wave. It's directly opposite. And we're in a different flow most days of the week. We're going along, rowing rowing with the culture, and this is the opposite, and so we don't live it. Let me give you an example of how the cultural, cultural takes this a different way. There's a book that um, came out a number of years ago. It's not in print anymore. It's called Confessions of an SOB. And I was interested in it. It's, it's a South Dakota guy who wrote it, a guy who came out of South Dakota, uh, one of our more famous people, I suppose, Al New, Newharth. Is that how you say his name? The founder of USA Today. He wrote a book, Confessions of an SOB, And at the end of each chapter, he lists what he calls the SOB's secrets to success. Listen to this. And see if you don't think it runs completely polar opposite to what Jesus teaches. Al says, be your own pitch man, sell yourself. Attention does not come to the humble and patient. The meek may inherit the earth, but they will never inherit the executive suite. Lead a self-promotional life. When niceness fails to do the job, try a little nastiness. Never hesitate to steal a good idea. Once you've obtained success, you have no choice but to guard. There is someone out there who wants what you have. Hoard and protect. Cover your backside. Don't share. Winning is the most important thing in life. Can you think of anything that's a better illustration of the world's values that so diametrically are opposed to what Jesus is teaching? If you do, send it to me, because I'd be interested. I'll use it the next time. Let's just go through this piece by piece. You know, the world says, happy are the proud. What's Jesus say? Verse 3. Uh-uh. It's on the poor in spirit the favor comes. The world says, uh, the opposite of verse 4, the world says, happy are the carefree, those who are able to avoid pain, those who are are able to make life never hurt them. And Jesus says, "No, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who cry at what God cries at." That's what he's saying. In verse four, um, divine favor falls uh, on on the mourn. In verse five, it's it's on the meek. Well, that's the opposite of what the world teaches. The world teaches, "Happy are those who walk on others, for they're going to get they're the ones who are going to get results." And the world teaches, "Happy are the comfortable and those who have everything that they wanted. Then they'll be fulfilled." Well, look at verse 6. Jesus says, no, God's blessing is released on hungering and thirsting people. The the people who realize that God fills where he first finds emptiness. That's where the blessing falls. The next one is on mercy. But the world would say, happy are those who have people at their mercy. True? Jesus says, no, happy blessed are the merciful heaven's mercy falls on the merciful the world teaches that, uh, this this one this one that you got to listen to the world teaches happy are those who can sin a little bit and not let it bother them that's what the world teaches but jesus in verse 8 he says if you want a glimpse of god you're going to have to walk in purity you're going to have to walk in purity otherwise you're not going to see him and that happens every weekend in churches People are you know, these guys must see something I don't see. And I would call you back to living a pure, hungry lifestyle before the Lord. The world teaches happy are the troublemakers because people are going to take notice of them. That's not what we see in verse 8 or 9. This says, blessed are the peacemakers, those who are about the ministry of reconciliation, which is what God the Father is doing. Those are the sons. That's what that verse is about. And then the world would say, you know, if you're popular and you're well-liked, well, that'll bring happiness. Not according to this. In verse 11, you know, God's reward falls on those who are persecuted. Now, my father-in-law, for 25 years, was a chemist for the Food and Drug Administration. The last 10 years, he was a pastor, and he's retired from both of those. And I talk pastor stories with him, but most interesting to me are his FDA stories of, you know, shutting down the Chinese restaurant chains in Kansas City for mice poop and the rice. And, you know, I, those, those are fun stories. And, um, but, you know, most of his time was spent uh, working with medicine approvals. And you know how they, uh, they, they test medicine? I don't know much about this, but I remember his stories. They, they get 100 people with the same illness. They give 50 of them the actual pill. And then 50 of them, they get something that's called a placebo. It's an inert substance that lacks the qualities necessary to treat the illness. Now, the reason I'm bringing that up with you is because I believe that the world's values lack the properties that will bring lasting fulfillment and lasting joy. This is number four. The world's values lack the properties required to give us true joy. Jesus gives us the properties that will do the job in the beatitudes now they may not get you the executive suite but they will give you the favor of god and so i want to ask you have you been buying into the world's values in any level of this and some of us we have to say yeah i actually have you say well i don't know if i have well, let me ask you this are you happy and you say well i guess i am it looks like i am but you know uh i don't know if i am or you still say, I don't know. Well, let me ask you this. Do you have an open heaven over your life? And if you don't know what that means, um, I would suggest you've you got work to do on that. And that means the divine favor's pouring out on you, his gifts, his blessing, the joy in your life. That's what an open heaven is. You say, how do I get into that place? Well, I'm showing you. It's in here. Jesus shows us that. This word blessed, I've tried to find another word for this for years. It's, it's an archaic word. I would doubt you've said it this week, you know? You know? Hey, this is Bill's tire, you know, have a blessed day. Maybe you do that, I don't know. But most people, you know, it's, it's an old word. Uh, so most of the new translations in the Bible, they just sub out happiness. But it doesn't work. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a good, uh, it's not a synonym. Uh, hap, the H-A-P, means chance. Happiness is far too dependent upon our mood swings, our situations, the changes in life, the seasons, all of that. It's not a good word. What's being described in the Beatitudes with the blessing is an inner state of bliss or joy that's consistent no matter what the tribulation is around you. And that's why we're saying this is a key passage for, end, for, for the end times. The word blessed, some people like word studies, is a Greek word makarios. That's not extremely important, but I want to tell you what it is. It is a word picture. Now let me, let me tell you what it is. The word that's used here is, the, is a word picture for a fertile island. You say, I don't really understand the significance of that. Well, let me read it right, right out of the word book. A place in the midst of the tropical sun, which provides a perfect climate and natural resources so complete, there's no need to go anywhere else. The Lord Jesus is giving us a road map into a place in the midst of tropical sun and tribulation that is so complete and rich, you don't have to ship in anything else from the outside. You don't have to go get the self-help book anymore. You don't have to go do all that kind of stuff. It's not that you don't have to listen to anybody else's wisdom or whatever. I'm just saying that it's here, and you got to get it at His feet on the mountaintop, and He invites you. This is number five. Jesus invites us up to a place in God that's very rich and it's very rewarding. I've tried to find other words for blessed. Um, I've come close, there's a couple I like one is the applause of heaven the approval, it's God looking over your life and going well done, I'm totally on this this is your obedience, Deuteronomy 28 Dennis read the blessings of Deuteronomy 28 later God's approval, a blessed person is one whom God congratulates and rewards accordingly he approves of them and that's what we have in Matthew 5. And this is back where we started again. Most people at some level are desperately seeking approval. And maybe you are too. When we're kids, we're seeking our parents' approval. We're seeking the approval of our friends. We're seeking the approval of our, of our, of our teachers. We get a little older and we start to seek the approval of maybe a, a girl or a guy. We start to seek the approval of, of an employer uh, we start to seek the approval of the Joneses next door, our neighbors. Hey, listen now, self-approval, huh? H- how hard is that to come by? We're, 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 we're hungry for approval. And, and, and think about this. Most religions of the world, they're, cut them down to everything else, here's what they are. They're human attempts at divine approval. We've got to do this, and maybe God will be happy about that. And you never really know, and there's no provision for sin or blessing. And it's scary, and i tell you why. Because if we do not know what brings divine approval, we will live in a way that releases his, the Lord's wrath. And many Christians are in that. They don't know, you know. I say, get into the, get into the Word. Let's stand. My, my hope today, worship team, you can come up was to leave you in a place where you're eager for divine approval. Listen, and leave you in a place where you're willing to renounce the world's way to get it. And leave you in a place where you're wanting to go up on the mountain with Jesus. And leave you in a place where your prayer all week long is, send rain, Lord, send favor over my life. I I want my life in, in a congruent path with yours. And I hope you're in that place. As the worship team prepares for this song, I just want to leave you with this image. Uh, we live in a 90-year-old house. We've lived there 11 years, and we have remodeled it on the inside. When we were remodeling the upstairs and the downstairs bathroom, I asked the plumber to do something pretty specific. And, well, I'll tell you why. I don't know what your house is like. You live in a newer house. I suppose this isn't a problem. But in our old house, I step in that shower and that shower head hits Big Steve right about here. You know? And I'm I'm, I'm doing one of these. And so when we're remodeling, has anybody else got a witness on that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when we were remodeling, I asked the plumber, I said, would you raise that spigot, you know, 12, 18 inches up there. Get that thing up there like that. Well, my kids were little at the time. They were like, Dad, we can't get at it. You know, and I said, stand under it. And, uh, I thought of that this week. Here's why. I think the Beatitudes raise the standard really high. The Father is setting this thing up here. But if we can get underneath that, and we can, and if we do and we seek to sit underneath it, the favor flow will compass our whole body, not just you know, the bottom half or one arm. Let me pray. Father, I think we get it. I, I know that the folks here are hungry for divine favor. I pray they would have it. We renounce the way of the world. We're going we're to follow a different path, a path that's going to lead us into a place, in my words, are a place of divine deluge over our households, over our relationships, over our own relationship with ourselves, so that we're at peace with ourselves and with you, so that we have joy. And, and there is blessing. We can say, I am blessed. Your favor is on my I pray for folks here as we sing this closing song that they would cry out, send rain, Lord. I'm going to orient my life according to the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to live a fasted and prayer prayer lifestyle. Thank you, Lord. This is a time to respond to the Word of God. We're going to respond with offering. Give your tithes today. Give your offerings. We come forward in the church right here. Lord, I pray that you'd bless this time right now. As we cry out to you for rain and favor. And as we respond to you with our whole lives and our offering, we pray in your name. Amen.